The book of Romans, chapter 1, and we're going to begin looking at verse number 13. It has been said that the book of Romans is the greatest document that has ever been penned in the history of the human race. It's a pretty big statement. But what other document do you know of on the planet, single-handedly, with no other addition or deletion, if you have the book of Romans, you can have eternal life. And you can live in a mansion for eternity. Now think of that. You may not be able to afford a good education down here, but you're... Knowledge will be complete when you get to heaven. You'll know everything God knows. You may live in a shanty down here, but if you have the book of Romans and you follow its instructions uh, with your heart, the scripture says that you'll inherit a mansion and walk on streets of gold. And I could just go on and on and on with those analogies. And so in light of that, I would have to agree that if, I, if, I, if there was a shortage of Scripture, and like in Russia, they were tearing pages out of Bibles to just get one, like they were back in the Cold War days. If I could only get one of the 66 books in this, of this Bible, which one would I want? Well, I'm, I believe I'd have to say I'd want the book of Romans above all. Because the book of Romans is a divine summons upon all mankind. It contains a divine summons. It summons all humanity before the court of the righteousness of holy God. And then it finds all of humanity guilty before holy God. And then it offers all of humanity an executive pardon from holy God. Now, I don't know how you could beat that. Somebody said, but, I, but, but, but I'm not guilty. Well, you don't need a pardon. But when it's not until you've, till you've been summoned to appear you find, you, you see yourself guilty, and then thank God to receive a pardon for all eternity. And not only a pardon, but a justification, which is bigger than a pardon. A pardon means you did it, but you ain't going to be held accountable for it. Justification means they're going to expunge the record, and as far as the court's concerned, it never happened. Now, I don't know what else, hey, if that won't make you run, I don't know what will. Amen. You get pardoned, there's a record of your pardon, there's a record of your, there's a record forever of your conviction. But it says right beside of it, pardoned, and ain't nobody, and by the way, did you know when you get pardoned, no one can overrule that? No one can turn down, no one can overturn a pardon. No one can overturn a pardon. It was debated at the end of the Clinton administration because Clinton probably did some pardons for bucks, for money. 
They believed that maybe his library was, had millions of dollars donated to the Clinton Library for, for uh, pardoning that yahoo that was outside the country that had, been, that had fled because he was so much deal here. But you know what they looked and checked? The Senate, the House, and the Supreme Court all looked at it and said, nowhere in our records, in our system, has a pardon ever been challenged. And to challenge the pardon would be to challenge the office. And that was tried and they couldn't impeach Clinton. And the only way you could have challenged his decision was to have impeached him. And that didn't happen. And so the pardon stands. Well, if that's the case, reckon how much stronger our case is in glory. Because as long as he is, we will be. Amen? As long as he's who he is, uh, hey, uh, what he says when he rules us justified, never sinned, but even better, justified, always been righteous. When we're justified, who can say anything about it? Matter of fact, the way Paul put it was this, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Amen? Now that's the commercial. Now I'll show you the scripture, all right? Verse 13, I want you to look at the passage. Romans chapter number 1, verse number 13. Now I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. Verse 14, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Verse 15, so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. Verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Father, again, we call upon you, asking you to help us now. Would you anoint and touch the Word of God as it goes forth tonight in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Thank you very much. And you may be seated. The Apostle Paul starts out and begins to, to, to talk about and begins to share. He said, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, uh, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you. I thought about poor old brother L.H. Lord knows he tried to go to Southeast Asia. And it's, I mean, he, he, he got to Asheville and they sent him back. He got to Tokyo and they sent him back. And, uh, you know, th there's two kinds of delays. The Apostle Paul talked about how in 2 Thessalonians, how that Satan hindered. And uh, certainly there is that satanic hindrance. There is that uh, hindrance from the devil. But I also want to say there is also a divine hindrance. There is a divine delay. Uh, I'll say it this way, providential delays. And uh, he said, oftentimes I purpose to come unto you, but was let hither. Now here's a good lesson in English. The word let is, appears here. It's consistent with what we also find in the book of, uh, when Paul wrote to the Thessalon Thessalonian church, 
And he said, talking about the Antichrist coming and the, and the rapture of the church, and, and, and rumor was the church had already been raptured, and rumor was the Antichrist was already uh, there, was probably, they probably figured it was Nero there in Rome or one of the Caesars. But he tried to explain to him, he said that that man of perdition, that man of sin, he said he, he won't appear, he's not coming, you won't see him, he's not going to stick his head up. said, until he that now letteth doth let, until he be taken out of the way. Well, that right there confuses some people. Because it is not uncommon in our language or in our culture and apparently has been now for 400 years that words tend to reverse their meanings for emphasis. Think about it. For, for my generation anyway, if I said, son, that is a bad car right there. Now what does that mean to y'all? If I say, son, that thing's bad. That thing is bad to the bone. What does that mean? That means it's good. Does it not? That means it's good. Uh, you know, back in my days, cars, you know, uh, they were hot rods. You know, today they're cool. Back then they were hot. Huh? I mean, things change, don't they? And, we, and what we do is, I, I think, is, is to emphasize something. We tend to say something just the opposite about it. A while back, they got to using the term wicked. Son, that is a wicked motorcycle. You know what that meant? It meant it was fast. It was good. It was the best you could get. Well, wicked and good are opposite one another. And so we use opposite terms to emphasize or to express uh, the, the, the meaning. I, I don't understand exactly why we do that, but we, apparently we have through the years. The word let is one such word. The word let today says, well, can, uh, will you let me in? It means to, uh, to, uh, to, to grant access. But years ago, the word let meant just the opposite. The word let meant don't let it in. Don't let it happen. The word let meant to hinder. And so he says here that but, but was let hitherto. I was, I was hindered. Several years ago, back, I guess once a generation back, the word let had another meaning. Uh, the word to let something, it meant to rent it. At the buggy shop at Dollywood, you'll see a sign and it says, Wagons let. That's all it says. Wagons let. It means it meant you could rent a wagon there. And still occasionally you'll see it in some legal documentation about letting a lease or letting an apartment or letting something. And, and occasionally in legal, legal documentation you'll see that term and it means not to hinder or not to give uh, access, but to, but to, but well, I guess it would be access, but to give, to, to, to lease or to, to do something in that nature. But he says, but was let hitherto. Now, I'm not saying the devil didn't want the Apostle Paul to go to Rome. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just simply saying this. Uh, he doesn't mention it specifically. There is such a thing of divine hindrance and providential hindrance. 
and I call in, in point in case, the Apostle Paul had his heart and mind set on Southeast Asia. Excuse me, I'm not right, it's not right. He on, uh, on Asia, on Asia heading north and west, north and west into Asia. As a matter of fact, if you'll take and map the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul would have ended up, if he'd have kept on the track he was ahead, and he'd end up in Moscow. That's the direction he's heading. He'd come up out of the Holy Land and he was heading north and west. And it would have taken him up through uh, what's now the Soviet Union. It would have taken him right up through uh, the Ukraine and through those parts of the country. And by the way, it would have taken him to a white-skinned, blue-eyed people in many cases. Look just like we do. So if you get a, if you ever if you're Caucasian and you get the idea that that God favored you over somebody else, think again. Because that's where Paul was heading. Matter of fact, probably a purer form of a Caucasian race than Europe held. Because in Europe you had the Spanish, the Italian, the Greek, you had all the different type plus the Norwegians and all the different strains of Europeans and yet the Lord turned him and he was divinely hindered. He was, had divine hindrance or providential hindrance. He went into one town and the Holy Ghost forbade him. And he went in the next town and the Holy Ghost forbade him there. And that's when he had the Macedonian call. And saw that man said, come over here and help us. And he changed his direction and went just exactly the opposite direction. And the reason that we send missionaries to Russia is because God sent a missionary to us, the Apostle Paul. And it was providential hindrance. We could be the communist nation. Russia could have been the democracy. And the gospel could just as easily went east and went around the globe. And we could be on the tail end of it. This now hearing it. We could have. But instead, the gospel, for whatever reason, took a westerly turn. And if you'll check, your, if you'll check history, it's, for whatever reason... It went west and it always has gone west. And if you'll think about what I'm saying, it's gone all the way around the world. It's about back where it started. It don't like far of being back where it started. And of course, we know that one of the fulfillments of end, the end times is that the gospel had preached the whole world. And I know that's talking about that gospel of the kingdom. But I believe we're going to see the world have a chance to hear before the Lord comes. And certainly we see in that even now. He said, I, I purposed, I would not have you be eager, brethren, but I often purposed to come unto you, but was let uh, hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you, even as among other Gentiles. And so he talked about this providential delay, but then he brings up this pressing debt. And he makes the statement, I am debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Now we know that what he, he wasn't just, as the old saying, blowing smoke here, he wasn't just talking to hear himself talk. Because we know that the Apostle Paul had done everything in his power to preach to the Jews. And they had rejected that gospel. And so he simply went to the Gentiles. 
but even among the Gentiles. He didn't care if he was preaching to a slave like Onesimus or if he was preaching to a king like Agrippa. It just made him know never mind. He really didn't care. He was not a respecter of persons. The Greeks, the barbarians really didn't matter to him. He just was fine with him. The word barbarian, the word when you take the idea of the Greek, that is the refined Gentile. The word barbarian comes from the thought of stuttered speech or, or, or just uh, not being able to understand what they're saying. And so that would have been the Iconians. That would have been a number of people that Paul went to. Remember when they tried to sacrifice to him there uh, outside of, uh, where was it, Lystra? Was it Lystra where they stoned him and he was trying to sacrifice to him? And he didn't catch on what they was doing. And here they went and got the priest to Jupiter and they brought garlands and oxen and brought them down the street, had a parade. And for, for a while, Paul and Barnabas thought things was pretty good. Hey, we're getting a good reception here. Because they couldn't hear in their own language them saying, that's, that's Jupiter and that's Mercurius. And the gods are here because we know for good sure that man was lame and we saw him get healed and the gods have come and now let's offer, let's kill these oxen and offer sacrifice to them. And when Paul finally figured it out, he had a time convincing them that they weren't gods. And then it made the whole crowd mad. And for, there at one point they was wanting to worship them and next thing you know they stoned them to death. Or tried to. The Bible said they threw him outside the city for dead. And some believe he may have been dead. May have been where he, may have been where he said, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. Don't know, but I do know this. He got caught up in the third heaven and saw things he was not allowed to utter. Interesting, the apostle Paul said, don't you say a word. And John was caught up on the third heaven and he said, write what thou seest. Funny how that works, isn't it? It just wasn't time for us to know. God wanted to save the best for last when he wrote the revelation. Don't you think that's what it was? And so uh, John the revelator rather than Paul the revelator. But he saw some things. And he said, uh, I'm debtor. I'm debtor. Just expand upon that a thought. You remember 2 Kings chapter number 7 verse number 9? Outside of the city of Samaria, there's been a siege and, and the people have starved to death and the, and the armies uh, there have surrounded them. And in the middle of the night, they all run off. And Elisha said, tomorrow there'll be flour sell for near nothing. They, were, they had resorted to cannibalism inside the city. They had, re, had resorted to eating uh, manure, animal dung, and selling animal dung. That's what they were living on. The, the starvation was so bad in the city. And in the night, the, the lepers said, well, said, if we stay here, we're going to die, starve to death. Said, if, if we go to the enemy, we're going to die. Said, the one thing about it, if we stay here, we know we're going to die. If we go to the enemy, they might cut our heads off and it might be a quicker way out. But said, you know, they might give us a last meal before they shoot us or, or skin us or cut our heads or whatever. They might give us a little something. You never know. It's 50-50 shot. Let's do it. So they went into the camp and said, hello. 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 We're here to surrender. 
And they couldn't find nobody. And here's, I mean, here's turkey legs still on the fire. Here's all this food and all this gold and all this spoil. And son, they eat and they parted and they had a big time and they, I can see them sitting around the fire that they didn't build, eating a big old turkey leg that they didn't kill, that they didn't grill. And one turns and looks at the other one and said, this is making my stomach hurt. So I said, we're eating too fast. No, no, that ain't what it is. We do not well. Here we are with all of this and food to waste. And right inside the city, there's people eating their own youngins. We do not well if we do not tell. Let's go tell a city that the famine's over and the siege is over. They had a debt. Now let me say this. Those lepers had been treated bad. Here's the thing. Those lepers were outside the wall. They had been ostracized and outcast by the very people they're worried about. They could have had a vengeance. They could have had it said, well, good enough for the bunch of hypocrites. Good enough for the bunch of devils. They throwed us out to let us starve and throwed us to the enemy, fend for ourselves. Good enough for them. Maybe one of them said, yeah, but I got a grandson in that city. The other one said, well, I got a little granddaughter. The other one said, well, I got nieces and nephews. And they can't help with lepers. They, they can't help it. Let's go tell them. We feel indebted to tell them. Paul said, I'm a debtor. <laughs> he said, I feel indebted. I have found something better than gold. I found something better than the finest morsels of food. I found something better than the greatest, uh, the anything in the I have found it. He went on to say there, and I'm ahead of myself in chapter uh, 1, verse 16. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. You think about what he, just, what he said. That's a big mouthful. The apostle Paul, he knew all about Greek uh, logic. The Greeks were, were the, some of the greatest intellects. Uh, still to this day, some of the greatest, the great, one of the greatest cultures that ever existed was the Greek culture. The greatest art, literary works, and all these things. And, and even though they had been overcome, when you mentioned uh, the Greeks, it was still uh, without doubt the, 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 the Greek logic and how Greeks assimilated thought and processed thought. It was just amazing. And the Apostle Paul spoke Greek read Greek, studied Greek, and had a great education among Greek culture. But it left him empty and void in his heart. He was a Roman citizen. He's born in a Roman town, but Roman citizen. The Romans had the greatest structure of government that any... Matter of fact, did you not realize... You know, do you know why that the children that come across the border and born in American soil, you know why they're American citizens? Because it's based on Roman law 2,000 years ago. That's how the Apostle Paul got to be a Roman citizen. He was born on Roman soil 
but his parents were both Jews. He was a part of the dispersion. His mama and daddy were deported. They decided to divide and conquer. And so they took the Jews and they scattered them among, among the Roman Empire. And the Apostle Paul was naturally born on Roman soil. And therefore he was a Roman citizen. They had a senate. We have a senate. They had an executive, they had a Caesar, we have an executive. They, even the branches of government. If Matter of fact, if you will follow me to Athens and you'll follow me to Rome, even our architecture of our capital is similar to the buildings. We actually base, we, not only the model of our government, but the model of the buildings is based after Roman architecture. It's amazing. And when you figure what the Romans had, folks, the Romans, they had it going. I have, I have personally ridden on highways that the Roman government built before Christ. And they are still being used. They've not been redone. They're made out of giant stones sunk down and they're rough when you drive on them but they're still the original stones. Now, tell me why the state of North Carolina can't get a road to hold up six months. And the Romans could build one in the last 2,000 years. The Romans figured out how to pipe water. Get this. This is the wildest thing you've ever seen. The Romans figured up a pump system for the aqueduct. I've seen drawings of it. I've not seen it. I was never there where it's at. But I've seen the aqueduct. The aqueduct came through and it was built out of big Roman arches. And they put the water up top. And so there was an elevated creek run through the town. And because it was elevated, you could hook a pipe to it and have running water in your house. Indoor plumbing was invented by the Romans 2,000 years ago. Pretty smart. They put it up, up, up high, number one, so the youngins wouldn't play in it, among other things, and uh, to keep it sanitary. But number two, so it would gravity into the houses. And they piped water out of the high mountains into the cities. There is a pump system that has been discovered. There was a mountain they had to cross. They figured out how to let the water run into like, a, 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 like one of our grist mills, like a, like a water wheel. So the force of the water would fall into the water wheel, turn a wheel, in turn drop that same water into a uh, a, a compartment, lift it, and then drop it back into the thing and go across the top of the hill and continue on in gravity. They figured out how to use the fall of water to lift water. I ain't seen that around here. But they had it 2,000 years ago. The Romans invented concrete. Do you realize that we lost, the, we lost concrete? Do you realize that we only rediscovered concrete a couple hundred years ago? And yet the Roman Colosseum is built out of concrete? 
You know why it was one of the wonders of the world? It's because it was so high. And you know what's such a big deal about that? Because you can only stack stones so high. Because when you got started stacking stone, when you got so high, it'd go to mashing in the ground. I don't care what you did. And it would only set so high. But they figured out this thing called concrete they could form. And the bottom of the Colosseum is made out of stones. But after you get up above the second story, it's all preformed or formed concrete. And in, in Rome, there are domes. To, one of the largest domed structures on earth is in Rome. It's still there. It still stands. And it's 2,000 years old. It has withstood all of that time and all of those things. And it's still there. And it's still the, one of the largest enclosed domes on earth. So what I'm saying is the Romans had it going on. But you know something you won't find in Roman, Roman uh, if you look through the Roman ruins, you know something you'll never find? You'll never find a hospital. You'll never find an orphanage. They didn't have those things. They kind of said, well, let the fittest survive. And that's the way they did it. There were no old folks' homes. There were no places of mercy whatsoever. Fortresses, military, uh, garrisons everywhere. By the way, we don't even have time to talk about the Roman army and the Roman legions. And we don't have, hey, how that they built the roads so that the Roman legions could march down them. How that they built supply lines and the logistics that they could do. And what they figured is, they figured out was they could not conquer places any further than the supply lines would reach. And so they built a logistical system, folks, that even today is studied, is even studied today by the governments of this earth. The Pony Express and some of these others have modeled themselves after the relay system that the Romans invented 2,000 years ago. Paul knew all about that. But on top of knowing about the Greek logic and the Roman law, the Apostle Paul knew about the Hebrew literature. Matter of fact, he knew it inside and out. He said he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, circumcised the eighth day. The Apostle Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a rabbi. He was a rabbinical student. The man knew the Bible, the Old Testament. He knew it inside, outside, upside, and downside. But not only did he know the Bible, he also knew the laws of God, but he knew the laws of man. The Apostle Paul knew the Torah, but he also knew the Talmud. And he knew it well, he argued law. He was a professor of law, of the Hebrew law. And having all of that background, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Whoopee. I'm not talking about a Galilean fisherman that when he opens his mouth, everybody says, look at that old country boy. Who's he think he is? All the apostles were... All the apostles were Galileans, but what, one? And when they talked, they talked like we do here in the mountains. They, they old country boys. They spoke Hebrew, but they didn't speak it very good. And when they went to town, everybody would kind of snicker behind the back and say, listen, them boys trying to talk. Well, they're country boys. And the Bible says that they took notice that they had been with Jesus. 
But when God, in my opinion, replaced the 12th apostle with the apostle Paul, he was a one of a kind. We're not talking about a Galilean fisherman. We're talking about a man of culture. We're talking about a man that not only could speak Hebrew, but could also speak Greek and Latin and probably some, some say five languages, some say seven. Some say that even though he couldn't speak, maybe he could read in ten different languages. We're pretty sure he read Aramaic. We know from his travels, about the only place he got thrown was there in Lystra. The only place, and because they were speaking in that tongue, that's about the only one. That was just a local dialect. He knew all the major languages. As a matter of fact, was well read and was well traveled. And hey, we're not, hey, we're talking about a, a cosmopolitan person who, who had been there and had done that. And having examined all of the philosophies and all the education and all the religions of the world, when he found the gospel, when he found the gospel, he said, so much for that other stuff. Whoopee! For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Every time that verse is quoted, I think of J. Harold Smith. I mean thousands of times he said that on his broadcast. But my friend, those words still ring true. And they, rang, they, they originated from the mouth of the Apostle Paul. But when you, hey, you got to remember who was, who was saying that. You're looking at a man who had been there, a, a man who, I'll be honest with you, I don't have a great deal of reference. In other words, I, I was raised here in West North Carolina. I had, first I'd ever been, you know, was just, you know, to the beach and back. I had never been nowhere. Never been out of the country. Didn't, I couldn't, don't speak but one language and don't speak it well. I mean, and for me to make a statement and say, this is, this is the real deal. Uh, so, that don't make that big, that's not that, carry much weight. When you get a man like the Apostle Paul, some have said, save Christ himself, a man who has impacted the human race greater than any other human that's ever lived. The Apostle Paul. When he says, I'm a debtor. Look, look, look at this progression. I, I'm going to have to quit. Look what he says. Look in verse 14. I am a debtor. Look at that. That, that speaks of his burden. I'm a debtor. He, he, he felt burdened that he had, and he had explored and had trained and had done, and yet he had found this simple truth. And he felt the burden to go and to tell. I'm a debtor. Look what he says. There's three times he says this. He says, I'm a debtor. Then look what he says. Verse 15, so as much as in me is. I thought about what that, as much as in me is. I, it's like us saying, with everything that's within me, with everything I got, with every fiber of my being, I'm going to do such and such. Or with every fiber of my being, I believe this or I believe that. With all of my heart, I believe this. That's what he was saying. For as much as in me is. Randy Bain preached a message one time on the in me is. <laughs> the in me is. The, every now and then the Apostle Paul, the in me is would break out on him. 
He just get beside himself. I've had that in me is break out on me a time or two, amen. Break out on you like a measles. Hallelujah. One minute you got ain't got it, and the next minute you got it all over you. Woo! About to feel like that right now. I'm a debtor. Woo, burden. Halfway through 15, look. Mm. He said, I'm ready. Woo! Burden. But then boldness. He said, I'm ready. I don't have to go back for nothing. I don't have to go back to the house. I am ready for to preach the gospel. But Paul, do you not know? Hey, when you went to the religious capital of the world, when you went to Jerusalem, you were mobbed. Paul, do you not understand? When you went to the intellectual capital of the world, when you went to Athens, you were mocked. And Paul, when you go to the legislative center of the earth, when you go to Rome, Paul, you're going to be martyred. Paul said, I'm ready. (laughs) I'm ready. When that prophet took his girdle and bound himself and said, this is what's going to come to you. He knew full well what was coming his way. And he still said, I'm ready. I've got the burden. I've got the debt. I'm I'm a debtor. And then he said, I'm, I'm ready. I've got the boldness. But then look what he said. I'm not ashamed. Verse 16. I've got the belief. They may cut my head off. But you trust what I'm telling you that inside of that brain that's a roll around inside of that head that's a roll around inside that basket. I still believe it. (laughs) They may cut my head off but they'll never change my mind. I believe it with everything I got. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Oh God that we could get a little of that on us. Whoopee. Just a little bit of that on us. That we might have just a little bit of that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God. I've got a pretty little out. I don't want to hear it. Admiration for the gospel. I'm not ashamed. The authority of the gospel. It's the power of God. The appropriation of the gospel to everyone that believeth. Access to the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The advantage of the gospel. The righteousness of God revealed. The antiquity of the gospel as it is written. But I ain't got time to preach all that. But I will say it this way. Paul said, I'm not ashamed. It's precious. Paul said, hey, he said, for it's the power of God unto salvation. He said, it's powerful. He said to everyone to believe it, it's personal. He said to the Jew first, also the Greek, that's its pattern. He said, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Hey, that's its purpose. And then he said, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Hallelujah. He said, it's preordained. As it is written, God knew that it was not by the works of the law that it in flesh but should be justified. I love it all the way back from the eons of time in the beginning. It's always been by faith, by faith, 
By faith. Read the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11. It doesn't say by works, by works, by works, by sacrifice, by sacrifice, by sacrifice. No, sir. It says by faith, by faith, by faith. And it changes dispensations. And regardless of the dispensation, it still says by faith. I want to say these hyper-dispensationalists that go around saying that one time, if there was a time you got saved this way, and then there's another time you got saved this way, and another time you got saved that way, there ain't no truth in that. There's only been one way you've ever been saved. By faith. By faith. You don't believe that? Cain and Abel, by faith. Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. By faith. At the beginning, all the way down to the New Testament times by faith. Someone now, my preacher, wait a minute. You telling me that that that, that old that the Cain and Abel believed in Jesus? Let me say it this way. The let me, let me, let me think of my words here a minute, just make sure I get it right. While the, now I want to know if I'll say use the word focus or not. Let me say it this way. While the object of their faith may have changed through the different dispensations, it could have, it may have. I don't know how Cain and Abel knew to do sacrifice unless that God's example of the sacrifice of the animals to clothe Adam and Eve, and that set the pattern. I don't know that they understood all about Calvary and Christ and God incarnate, but all they knew was God required blood. And so the object of their faith was that if God required blood, then blood it shall be. So the object of their faith may not have been what ours is, Hey, we're looking back on Calvary and we can see clearly and plainly what it is and all the ramifications and all the glorious aspects. When Abraham is offering Isaac on top of Moriah, I have serious doubts if he understood all the details of what was going on. But we look back in type and say, what a beautiful type of the Father and the Son. The wood of the cross and the knife of the judgment of God. And the son looking at the father and saying, Father, behold the knife and the wood. But dad, ain't we forgetting something? We forgot to bring the lamb. Apparently he had been there like done this before. He knew the ingredients of sacrifice. I don't know that Abraham knew all he understood, all he knew about it. But he said, he, hey, in, in one of the great statements of prophecy that Abraham spoke, he used the name that would not be revealed according to the book of, book of Jackson, chapter number 6. God said that he was not known by Jehovah to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he was known rather by the phrase and the term uh, Elohim and El. He said, I was not known by, the, by, by Jehovah to them. But said, I reveal myself as Jehovah to you. And yet, you know what? You know what? 
You know what Abraham said? In that great statement of faith, he said, Behold, God shall provide himself a lamb. And when God did provide that ram hung by the horns in the briar so that it would not have a blemish on it, because those old briars could have made it bleed and not one drop of blood could be shed, couldn't be an inferior sacrifice, so it was caught by the horns. And when he loosed it and he offered that ram instead of his son, he called the name of the place Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. And yet Exodus said that he didn't know him by that name. Well, he sure called him by that name. He said something he didn't even know what it meant. Sure did. What are you saying, preacher? I'm saying the Bible says in verse 17, And therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. It's received by faith and it's reproduced by faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. All the way back. As far back as time goes. Salvation has always been by faith. There in that verse 17, the righteousness of God revealed. Do you realize that the righteousness of God to those that reject it, it's condemnation. But to those that accept it, hallelujah. It is coronation. To those that reject the righteousness of God, it is condemnation. But to those that receive the righteousness of God are the judgment of God, the, 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 the righteousness of God and, and, and accept themselves as who they are, it's coronation. Paul said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Let's stand together tonight.